0: So you got a medical lab report that shows disease with many symptoms. You knew you had the symptoms. Medical lab report shows more of the names of the disease. And you decide you're going to seek your own cure. So you, tr- you try different things yourself, and um, you only get worse. At last, you do what you should have done in the beginning. You go to the one doctor who is qualified to treat and cure you. But today we're going to see how this is like the relationship between God's law and God's promise. We've been in the series, The Gospel for Life. Last week we were in chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. And just to highlight really, really briefly what that was all about, three main points that Paul made in that text from chapter 3, verses 1 to 14, uh, first thing that Paul was showing as evidence that conversion comes by faith, not law. So the Galatians themselves were under the influence of those who were trying to add requirements to the gospel. And Paul was saying, you're foolish. How did you, who bewitched you to come under the influence of that kind of teaching? And then Paul was showing them, secondly, how uh, being counter-right with God has always been by faith. So he showed that Abraham himself was counter-right before God by faith in God's promise to him. And that promise has been unfolding ever since Abraham, but uh, God show, or Paul showed that Abraham was the prototypical believer, demonstrating that being counted right before God has always been by faith alone. And then the third thing that we saw last week that Paul taught was that why no one can be counted right with God by works. And he said the reason is because God's requirement is that we perfectly keep the law His requirements for our whole lives, all the time, from birth till death, and that doesn't work because we have sin in our lives, and so the more we try to obey the law, the more we come under God's curse. That's the bad news. The really great news is Christ himself, Jesus, became a curse for us, took the curse of the law on himself, and exchanged his righteousness for a curse. So that is how we are kind of right before God. So with that, Paul... We might say, Paul, so what use of the law is? If the law, that sounds like the law is a pretty bad thing. So today we're going to see how law, how law relates to God's promise. God's law relates to his promise. So let's look at today's text, which is verses 15 to 25 of chapter 3. It's verses 15 to 25 in chapter 3 of Galatians as we continue on our journey through this story of the gospel for life. Paul starts out by saying, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word who reveals to us Christ. Your word also reveals to us your law, your perfect standard of righteousness. And it is good. But we're not, and so we have a problem. And that problem we know is resolved in Christ, in the gospel. But let us feel, Father, the weight today of your good requirement and let us feel the the release and the joy and the freedom from your provision for that requirement that we have have not ever kept. Thank you, Father, for your good and perfect plan and your patience with us and your great and mighty mercy toward us in Christ. Help me to make it clear what your word says and how it applies to our lives. Holy Spirit, energize what takes place here today. Your power alone do we trust. It's in Christ's name we ask, amen. So in verse 15, Paul is giving an example, a human example, he says. Once a man-made covenant or agreement has been made, by, made legally binding, you can't annul it or invalidate it or set it aside. So he's comparing this to the law and showing that uh, you can't invalidate what initially was agreed upon. Uh, so it's, it's like that even with us today. Uh, you can't annul a legally binding agreement like with a will, once that's been signed and, and verified, and particularly when the person for whom the will was written uh, has died, then you, there's no changes to it. So we all recognize that as being something that um, you can't change or invalidate. Tr- it was true in Paul's day. It's true in our day. So in verse 16, Paul goes ahead and says that the promises God made to Abraham were not just to him but to his offspring as well. So when you look in Genesis 13 and Genesis 17, for example, you see the promises for your offspring and you, you and your offspring. Paul knew that the word offspring, seed, literally, in Hebrew and Greek, could be used as a collective noun. Sorry, we have to do a little bit of grammar study, so don't glaze over too quickly. Um, He recognized, he knew that it could be used as a collective, a plural noun that had a single reference that also a single excuse me a singular word that refers to plurality. So, for example, we do the same thing in English. We say that that plant went to seed, meaning not just the plant spit out one little seed, but the plant spread out a bunch of seeds. Or we say I planted grass seed, meaning I didn't just plant one little tiny seed of grass, but I planted a bunch of seed of grass. So we we talk that way today. But Paul knew that, and and yet his argument here is. That, Paul, that God, in his promise to Abraham, said the promise is for you and your seed. And he says, ultimately, that referred to Christ. So it certainly did refer to all the descendants of Abraham, but the, its fullest and greatest, deepest fulfillment was to Christ. So that's the point that Paul's making there. So, uh, Paul, so what, why did you make that point? What are you saying? That's in verse 17. Paul said in verse 17, this is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterwards. So God reveals the promise to Abraham and then 430 years later after his seed, his offspring is multiplied in Egypt, they've been enslaved in Egypt and God reveals the law to them through Moses. Uh, The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul or does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So why does Paul say this? Why does he make this point? Well, because the Galatians, those Christians who Paul had brought to faith who are in what today would be southern Turkey, the Galatians uh, were under the influence of those who teach that law works must be added to gospel faith for a person to be fully accepted by God. And as we've seen over these weeks, we are recognizing the reason Paul... Has to teach this to them, and the reason we need it today is, our by nature we resist the gospel, we stray from the gospel, we uh, will believe anything but the gospel, and so that's what Paul needs to keep reiterating with them, and that's why we continue to need it today. So the Galatians, Paul thought, may be thinking that since Moses' law came after God's promise to Abraham, that maybe the law superseded the promise to Abraham. promised Abraham was good for a while, but maybe they're thinking that uh, Moses, later uh, bringing the law in, might have invalidated or changed the promise or added to it in some fashion. And but Paul's saying, no way, that's not what, what it is. The nature of the law and the promise is distinct. It's very, they're very different from one another. Uh, Paul showed from the scriptures in last week's passage, from verses 6 to 14, that uh, Abraham was counted righteous by faith alone and that the promise of blessing and the blessing, as we've seen from last week's passage, is righteousness and life. We're counted right in God's sight and we, see, we receive eternal life uh, through uh, faith in Christ. That is the Abrahamic blessing fulfilled, Move forward 2,000 years to Christ. That is how Abraham's blessing was fulfilled in Christ. And so that comes to us in the gift Gifted righteousness and gifted life that we received completely by faith alone, and so uh, God had already ratified the promise to Abraham by His promise to, verbally to Abraham. I uh, we read in Genesis that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So God saw to it that in His word He said that is how uh, Abraham was counted righteous by God, was by believing in His promise. But also he did something that was recorded in Genesis 15 that thankfully we we don't have to do today. But the way that they ratified a covenant is God said to Abraham, go get some animals. Get a cow, get a goat, get a ram and a dove and a pigeon. And Abraham knew what to do because this was traditional what they did in those days. They would cut the animals in half and put them opposite each other and make a path of cut animals. Yep, Animals were harmed in the doing of that ritual. Um, And so normally, each covenant party would walk between the animal halves, and that meant, if I break this covenant, may what was done to these animals happen to me. So it's pretty serious. I deserve to die. The amazing thing in the covenant between God and Abraham, when you read the story, is that Abraham slept through the whole thing, and God showed up in a a blazing fire, a big, big torch, and went through himself. Why did he do that? And why didn't Abraham wake up? I don't know why Abraham didn't wake up, except that God probably caused him to sleep. To demonstrate this, that God was placing the fulfillment of the covenant totally on himself and not at all on anything Abraham would do. Now, Abraham, God did call Abraham to do some things out of obedience, but that wasn't conditioned condition for God to fulfill the promise. And so, that's Paul's point. God ratified, just like we would sign an agreement today, the promise made to Abraham, and a law that came later didn't change that. There was a different purpose for the law coming, and we'll see what that is. So the law had to have some other purpose than as a condition for people to fulfill. God is faithful to His promise. When He makes a promise and He says, I'm going to fulfill it, He doesn't change His mind later on and say, ah, oh, second thought, I'm going to do something different. God's giving the law could not be Him changing His mind about the covenant blessings being based upon His promise, not upon His people's performance. And verse 18, uh, Paul says, For if the inheritance comes by law, it is no longer, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. So you got law, you got promise. All right, I need two volunteers. This is gonna be very short, it's not gonna hurt. You're not gonna be overly embarrassed. I just need two people. Come right on up. I've got money, if money's involved, I've got dollars. Okay. All right. So I got one volunteer here. Can I have another one? Cindy, come on up. We need to have one. All right. You can go to lunch on this. So, Dean, I'm sorry to say you are in debt up to your eyeballs. You are a dollar in have debt. You've been looking into my books. No, I just <laughs> I just know you. All right. And uh, and so the only way out is for me to freely give you a dollar. Do you trust me to give you a dollar? You bet. There you go. Right on. Okay. Cindy, in order to get this dollar, I need you to go over to uh, Cindy Lund and tell her she's the most wonderful person in the world. Go, go do that now. Did she do it? hear that abuse I got? Abuse. Well, you, you earned this dollar. I did. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, you can go sit down. That was it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So you say, man, I'd like a dollar, too. I'm out. I'm out of money. So the purpose in that is, one, was completely by free grace. Dean was pathetic and in debt, and he had no hope of recovering anything other than trusting in my promise to give him a dollar. Cindy had to earn it by going to this Cindy and telling her she's the most wonderful person in the world, which is probably true. But she still, if she had not done that, I would not have given her a dollar, and she would have had to fight with Dean over. It would have been ugly. So we <laughs> spared them from that. So what Paul's saying in verse 18 is either the inheritance, which is eternal life, comes by God's gift according to his promise, or by our performance. You can't mix those two. They have different purposes. Receiving God's promised blessing of righteousness and life. Every time you hear that blessing word, don't, don't just glaze over a Christian word, blessing. In this context, it's talking about righteousness that comes from God and life that comes from God by a free gift. That, the reason it was to us free is because God himself fulfilled the conditions, just like he did with Abraham, through his son Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled the condition by becoming a curse for us. On the cross, he took all the cursing for our failure to perform the, God's law, his righteous standards, and paid for them in full. And the question is, do you believe this? Do you believe that Christ's death was sufficient for every sin you ever did commit, will commit, have committed? Everything wrong with you, his sin, his payment, his atoning death, paid for it. If you're believing that today, then you are a believer in the gospel, the good news. You're a believer in God's promise. You don't need to mix it with law-keeping, as, as a way to merit God's favor. So uh, kind of a diagnostic question is, in what ways are you most tempted to trust in your own efforts to be acceptable to God? In what ways are you most likely to seek to trust your own effort, your own efforts to be acceptable to God? And a way to think about that is, what do you do when you sin? What do you do when you sin? Now, who has sinned this week? All right, that's some of us haven't. We need to learn from you, so um, Do you beat yourself up for hours and days? Or, do you deny it? Or, do you minimize it? Or do you rationalize it? How many of you are experts at all of the above? So that's not a gospel response. The, the response is to completely repent toward Christ and completely trust Him to, and His atoning death and His resurrection to save you and to forgive you and to cleanse you, He, and to trust His work in you. So we'll talk more about that as we go. But at this point, um, if God's promise has priority over the law and the promise is permanent, as Paul just showed, then why, is, why was the law given at all? That's what Paul's going to talk about. Paul says it was added because of transgressions. Okay, so if we are not justified by law, if we don't receive the Holy Spirit by law, then what was God's purpose for the law? It was an add-on. It was a temporary side road in God's unfolding plan of redemption. It was to expose and reveal sin because of transgressions. It was to expose and reveal sin until the ultimate offspring, the ultimate seed of Abraham... Who would fulfill the promise would come. And then Paul uses these confusing words, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So we see in Deuteronomy 33 and a couple New Testament passages that a bunch of angels attended the giving of the law, so they were kind of part of that. And that Paul also says in verse 20, now an intermediary, a mediator, implies more than one, but God is one. I think the best sense I can get from that is Paul says that a mediator means you've got to go between between two parties. Just like today, if someone mediates a conflict between you and another, that means you're not directly communicating, but you are communicating through a mediator. We understand that today. But ideally, if you can communicate directly, that's good. So I think what Paul's saying here is angels and Moses mediated the law. The promise came to Abraham directly through God, directly to Abraham, and comes to us even in a more powerful way directly through Christ today. So we don't have that kind of mediator. We don't have a human or angelic mediator. It's God himself through his son Jesus for us. All right. So, So what? Well, the promise of the gospel is superior to the law. The law was not an override of or an enhancement to. The promise, it served a temporary purpose. So then... In verse 21, uh, Paul asks this question we we might be asking ourselves. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Do they stand opposed to one another? And Paul answers that. You might think, because of all his, the law can't save, the law can't justify, the law can't be a means of of gaining life, you might think he would say, bingo, you hit it, yeah, right on, they do contradict. But instead he says, no way, absolutely not. The law is not opposed to God's purposes. So we need to unpack that. Why? In fact, Paul says, If a law could have been given that was able to give eternal life, then righteousness would indeed come by the law. The problem was not with the law as a good and perfect expression of God's will, His standards for how we are to live. The problem is our brokenness, our defect. By nature, we are dead to God. We are spiritually dead. And just like all those horrible zombies that come out this time of year, we act pretty awful in our deadness, right? For you zombie fans. And we are sinners by nature and practice. And practice makes us more and more imperfect. So the problem was not in God's law being too out of reach for us as in and of itself, but because of our sin, we don't do it. We rebel against it, either passively or actively. So the law can't fix our problem. It can only diagnose it. It's like the doctor doctor who gave us the diagnosis it reveals and exposes that we all fall short of God's good and perfect standards it's like our civil laws as we know we got all kinds of laws in place city county state federal and they don't make us better people they only show us when we mess up they don't improve us they only show us and condemn us and punish us when we when we blow it so that's similar with God's revealed law to us In verses 22 and 23, then Paul goes on and talks about uh, what can and does the law do then. The law, broadly understood, is anywhere in all Scripture, because he says in verse 22, but the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So, the law, which is anywhere in the Scripture where it explains God's requirements of us anywhere from Genesis to Revelation, really, because there are requirements all over the Bible, anywhere God requires us to do something, it exposes, uh, it imprisons, or literally that word means to enclose or confine or shut up on all sides, everything under sin, under its guilt and power. You say, Paul, how is this not uh, contradictory to God's promise? We're going to get there. The law in Scripture confines people. This is what it means from any other way of life and righteousness but through the promise by faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, the law says, nope, you can't do it, nope, you're not doing it, nope, you're not doing it, you're not doing it. There's no other way except through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the law is confining people to. The law does what it was given to do. It reveals sin and the fact that there is no human remedy for sin's guilt and power. It rightly demands righteousness and condemns our lack of it. It defies all our attempts to get out from under it, or to redefine it, or to dumb it down, or to deny it. And probably in our culture, even our Christian culture today, the problem is we say, well, obviously God can't be serious for us to keep his perfect standards, so let's lower the standard and say that is what works. If you lower your standards, you can keep them every time, right? If we if we qualify them ourselves, we, know we can make them easy for us to obey by redefining. But the law doesn't allow that. It doesn't say, redefine the law, make it easier to obey, and then you're good to go. No, let's let the law be the law. Let's let the law do what it's intended to do. Confine us from every other way of escape except through Jesus Christ. So the law doesn't show us the way of freedom from its confinement and condemnation. That only comes through the revelation of Christ that is, the gospel, that is, his death, life, death, and resurrection. We will try anything we think will get us out from pain of consequence, right? I mean, we will do that. Anything that we'll do to avoid the pain of the consequences of disobedience to God or, or and um, the consequences of sin. We love any false hope of deliverance that fits our desires, that doesn't require us to cast ourselves completely on God's way of salvation, we love making up our own ways out. But the Scripture doesn't accommodate our efforts to find workarounds to getting free from sin's guilt and consequences. So that's what Paul is saying in verses 22 and 23. He says, the law, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. People were always saved by faith in God's promise, in Abraham's promise... Uh, God's promise to Abraham, even while they lived under the law. Paul made that clear, that the law, um, that Abraham was saved by faith. Even for people who lived under the law of Moses, with its rules and regulations and rituals and priesthood and sacrifices, all these pointed to the fulfillment in Christ, but it was through symbols and shadows and dimly revealed. That's why people struggled so much to get uh, how... uh, how can God's promise to Abraham provide release from the futility and failure of us to keep His law? For centuries, God's people struggled with that. They couldn't see clearly because it hadn't been fulfilled yet. They knew that He made the promise to Abraham, but they couldn't quite get how that was going to be fulfilled. Understandably so. So uh, as I thought about this, I thought this time of year, you might go to a corn maze. Are there any corn mazes in this area? All right, so uh, when our kids were Young, and we lived in Port Angeles. We went to a corn maze. I'm so glad we don't go to corn mazes anymore. Those things are scary. You can get lost in them for hours or days. You go down so many dead ends, and when you keep finding yourself stuck in the same dead end for 25 times in a row and it's starting to get dark out, you know you're in trouble. Some of you are probably really good at getting out of mazes. Uh, But you know you're doomed when you're stuck. I wonder how many bodies of those who never made it out of the corn maze alive the evil farmers find when they finally cut down the maze. Of course, they're never going to reveal that with their sinister plot and ruin their income. I can't imagine how gory the combines are after they mow down those mazes. Fertilize it for next year's corn crop, no doubt. You will forgive me for that illustration. I know I'll ask. Corn mazes wouldn't be so hopeless if you could just get up on a high tower or in an airplane and see the way of escape and freedom from the imprisoning power of the maze. So it is with the law. In redemptive history, in God's unfolding plan of redemption, until the way of life and righteousness through faith in Christ was revealed, people were confined in the maze of the law. When Christ fulfilled the law and the promise, at last, by his life, death, and resurrection— the way out of the maze was made clear. Experientially in our lives, that was true in redemptive history, it's also true in our lives. Trying to live for God or overcome guilt or prove that we're good or at least better than others, which is often our standard, hey, I may not be great, but I'm better than he is or she is. That's mostly our standard. We compare ourselves to others and we think, hey, I can see people worse than me, so that's, God will accept me because I know that these other people are worse. That's not the standard. The law is the standard. So we, um, trying to live for God or overcoming guilt or prove that we're good out of our own morality or our own standards or our own spirituality leads to all kinds of dead ends in the maze. We can be self-deceived that we're good enough for God or we can try all kinds of self-medicating to deal with shame, guilt, failure, or despair or we can live in bitterness and anger because life has been unfair or people have let us down. Or we can trust in our successes, in things that we're good at, in the place of trusting in God's promise. So whether it's in our careers, our education, our finances, don't, don't get trusting in those dollars. Sports, families, popularity, friends or hobbies, we can trust in any of those things to give us life and make us feel right And again, our standard is usually not before God, but before ourselves or others. But until we are convicted by God's law, by His standard for righteousness, and see that our only hope for life is in Christ, we'll remain in the maze of deception, denial, or despair. And Paul finishes this section in verses 24-25, or saying, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, <clears throat> in order that we might be justified by faith. Guardian, we get our English word, we, not that we use this word much at all anymore, pedagogue. It was um, in Greek Roman culture, it was a household slave who would supervise boys from ages six till teenage years. The pedagogue taught socialization, monitored education, supervised all behavior, and guarded them from predators. Most of them were harsh disciplinarians, using things like tweaking of the ear, cuffing of the hands, whipping, caning, pinching, were some of their choice discipline methods. So they were harsh disciplinarians. Historically, then, the law was our pedagogue. The law was our guardian, our disciplinarian, until Christ came. Paul was saying that the law fulfilled a temporary disciplinary purpose in God's unfolding plan of redemption. It kept demanding living according to God's holy standards, which everyone failed at miserably. And <clears throat> under the Old Covenant, it included sacrifices, priests, symbolic holy days like Passover and Day of Atonement, tabernacle. All of these were pointing to there, there needs to be a way of forgiveness through the sacrifice and priesthood and mediator, shedding of blood. All of these pointed to Christ, but they couldn't quite uh, depict the fulfillment, obviously because the fulfillment hadn't come. Until Christ came, the best they could do, the best the law could do, is stoke the hope for a permanent solution. For even the Old Testament writers themselves said this in more than one place the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. So law supervised God's people until in Christ they could receive the fulfilled freedom of being counted right with God by faith and receive the promised Spirit. And Paul says, now that faith has come, in verse 25, we're no longer under a guardian. Now that the fulfillment of life and righteousness through faith in Christ has come, we are no longer under the childhood temporary pedagogue. That's why he said to you Galatians, you're foolish for allowing yourselves to come back under the law as if that is an advancement or enhancement to the gospel. How could you want to revert back to the status of childish disciplinary supervision in place of the true freedom and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why would you go back to that? Why? We do go back to that, and we have to keep challenging ourselves by preaching the gospel to ourselves and to one another every day because we're relentlessly steered away from the gospel. So, um, and it's like childlike behavior coming back under the law. Some, some of you adults may have parents who want to treat you like you're still 16, 12, or six? I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. But some of you know what I'm talking about. Of course, if you act that age, it's, it's your problem, right? But sadly, some adults may actually like being treated like a child by their older parents. There is an unhealthy emotional immaturity when an adult prefers to revert to childish behaviors, whether prompted by parents or not. So it is when Christians choose to live under the bondage of the law of seeking to earn God's favor by self effort or creating their own spirituality, of not trusting in Christ for life and righteousness, and live under constant guilt and shame as if His atonement is not enough, or else in hardness of heart. So we can fall off in the side of despair, guilt, and shame in that and wallow in that, or we can have hardness of heart and pride to fight off uh, the conviction. Or because no one's ever going to hurt me again, I'm going to self-protect myself for life. Or some of us are very proud of our ministry and our role and what we do for God. Or there's all kinds of ways that we do this, all kinds of ways that we don't completely seek our righteousness and life in the gospel of Christ. So now I understand Paul's, uh, what he said back in verse 19 of chapter 2. Verse 19 and chapter 2, Paul said, For through the law, I died to the law. Through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. What what was he saying there? The law kills us, so to speak, from seeking life by it. The law says, Do this, and you shall live, but you know what? You really aren't doing it. You can't do it, so you're going to die. And the law steers us away from itself. That's its purpose and God's uh, plan. Uh, So God's law can't save us, it can't justify, it can only condemn, it can't give life, it can only kill. But if we let the law do its job, it confines and restricts us from any false hope to escape its condemnation and leaves us the one true way of deliverance, God's promise of life and righteousness to be received by faith in Christ alone. The law exposes the disease that only Christ, the great physician, can heal by the gospel. I'm going to pray for us in light of what, what we've heard. Father, the only reason that you do forgive us is not because you're just saying, let bygones be bygones. I'll oh, just forget about it. It's no big deal. Every single violation of your holy standard is deserving our eternal condemnation and death. That's the truth. That's the hard truth, but it's the true truth. And yet, but you, the very God who deserves, it would be right to punish us eternally, provided for us Christ, the only one who could absorb my eternal condemnation, upon himself, pay for it, defeat it, overcome it, and by grace and the power of the Holy Spirit provide it for me freely. That's too glad to be true. It's too good to be true, Father. But I'm so glad it's true. I pray for the many of us here today who have embraced Jesus as our Savior and Lord and are putting their trust in his life, death, and resurrection For the forgiveness of sin and everlasting life and righteousness. That we would continue to catch ourselves when we're living as if the gospel isn't true. Whether because of ongoing guilt and shame and despair or pride or arrogance or self-protectiveness or living as if what we do makes us better than others. And the many ways, Father, I pray, Father, that today that we would understand more about the deception of our own hearts and more about how we need to redirect our hearts toward Christ and the gospel. And then, Father, for anyone today who has not yet really embraced Jesus by faith, alone, who's recognized the bad news is really awful, that the law exposes us as sinners, deserving of death and condemnation. But the good news is really good. The gospel, the good news. Christ is a mighty and merciful Savior. He has provided everything that we need to be counted right in your sight. You see us in Christ as you see Christ. There's nothing we can do to earn and merit your love or cause you to love us more. All we can do is receive and believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for that glorious truth and the reality that Christ is. It's not a religion, it's a relationship with you. Eternal life, it's not just a, our, certainly not our best life now. The best life is yet to come. But it is a good life now that we have the life of Christ in us and for us. Praise your name. Amen.